this episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And today we're continuing our five series by looking at season four, episode five. Kelly, do you want to talk about our topic? Sure. So season four, episode five, we saw kind of a few things going on um, and, and we'll dig into each of them. But I think what we'd like to focus on is this idea of misery and the miserable schadenfreude and zombies and so we'll talk about how those all link together but it really um, rests on this idea of people being in misery as kind of the foundation of the episode great well and and so some of the in terms of an episode recap some of the key points of the episode are that um this this episode opens with the boys talking about where marlo's crew are putting the bodies and they're, they start talking about dead and special dead and sort of allude to the idea that Chris Parlow is turning them into zombies. Right. And we'll come back to that scene later because I think it's pretty uh, critical to sort of unpacking the episode. But there's a few other plot points that we'll just recap in case anyone hasn't seen the episode lately. So Bailey, do you want to run us through it? Sure. And I think actually the, the, the zombie conversation at the beginning really sets the stage for sort of the rest of the episode, which is pretty dark and miserable. So we have Valchak talking about um, St. Jude as being the patron saint of lost causes. Um, this is really where the torment of bubbles by that other street-involved person starts to really ramp up. Um, and we're really seeing bubbles get like very harassed at this point. Um, Bubbles and Sherrod develop the fracture between the two of them because of this other person. Um, and Bubbles feels that Sherrod isn't really doing what he can to stand up for him. Um, Bunk and Freeman really become aware of the missing bodies and start to wonder, like, they've now decided that there's for sure Marlowe owns most of the territory and yet there are no dead bodies. So they become obsessed with looking for the bodies. Um, we get Herc planting the camera on Marlowe to try to catch him. Um, Omar gets set up and uh, Watkins leaves the mayor, which opens up a huge opportunity for Tommy Carchetti. And finally, over in the schools, uh, Presbo really tries to take control of his classroom. Yeah, and that's, that's hard to watch as well. Um, poor Presbo mm -hmm. is really having a hard time of it. Yeah. Um, why don't we watch the zombie scene now, uh, just to keep it in our minds, and then we can talk about it a little bit later, but just so everyone knows sort of how the episode opens. Bailey, can we watch the scene? See the cap of motherfucker? You put a pistol to his head and say pow, and he tagged. But with Chris and him doing? Yo, it ain't working there. I know you're making this up. Worry to my mother, yo. Lex ain't dead. I seen him creeping in the alley last night near the playground. Everybody know Lex is dead. Nah, there's dead and there's special dead. Yeah, Chris working that juju shit. Nah, man, what I'm saying is they zombies. Why you think he take them in the vacants? He need time to change them. You don't believe me, yo, it's on you. Yo, they funny, ain't they, Michael? I don't know about that voodoo shit, man. But Chris is definitely doing something. Get a nigga to walk up and out knowing he about to get capped, man. Chris, he different. And you can tell by them cool-ass country clothes that nigga be wearing. Nah? Nah. Too much buck. Probably 40 cap. 
Yeah, man, this is serious business. So you saying Lex a zombie? Pookie, Byron, all them niggas. And Chris? Yeah, Chris, zombie mask. Who this one going away? That's what we've been trying to tell you, yo. Chris got the power. He tell them to come and they gotta come. Like the devil do with the damned. What you think Chris got them doing? They're probably spies, man. Can't figure any other way Marlon knows so much. Yeah, that's what it is. And like in this movie, Zombie Killer or something, they came out at night. Hunting. Hunting? Yeah, man, they... <sighs> yeah, and in that movie, they were snatching people up. Stealing their wolf. Okay, so that being our um, entry point into the episode, we, shortly after that, um, we see Valchek talking about St. Jude, and St. Jude is the patron saint of lost causes. Um, and so, Bailey, there is a line from the prayer to St. Jude. Why don't you read that for us? Yep, so the prayer to St. Jude, um, one of the lines is, pray for me who am so miserable. Right, and so we get this idea from um, the uh, uh, St. Jude reference that being a lost cause is associated with being miserable and that miserable is sort of this end state that you cannot emerge from. Um, and that is kind of a very dark emotion that hangs over the episode. And there's a lot of dark um, stuff going on, which Bailey just recapped. And I think um, that's kind of the relationship between um misery and this sort of psychological state um mm -hmm. it and, does for me harken back to to uh catcher in the rye sometimes um hole and caulfield is in sort of a we and we reference catcher in the rye in relation to the wire before but he is sometimes in this state of just like misery yeah yeah totally and so that's a really good reference other um references with misery would be um, some gothic fiction like Frankenstein, the monster, mm -hmm. uh, is often referenced as being in misery and he's sort of miserable throughout the uh, entire novel and he's a miserable creature in all senses mm -hmm. of the word. Um, and so I don't want us to forget about the gothic because that will come up again when we dig into the, the zombie theme. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, what, what else is misery in this episode? So Bubbles, I think, is pretty painful to watch, right? Yeah, I mean, I almost find this season too difficult to watch because of Bubbles' misery. Like, I think the way that David Simon um, lays that out, and especially because Bubbles does try to reach out to help uh, for help a number of times, he kind of tries to get in hold of Akima, and she sends him to Herc, and there's this, there's a sort of you know, jostling and, and nobody can help bubbles. And it's so frustrating. It's horrible. It's horrible. But then no. also there's this spectacle of people laughing at bubs. And we talked yeah. a little bit in one of our previous episodes about this idea of punishment and spectacle when it comes to Foucault. Um, but in this case, uh, the spectacle is not kind of about the horror of witnessing the punishment. The spectacle is actually people laughing. Yeah, exactly. And Bubbles goes from being kind of the jokester um, archetype that we've talked about in the past and in almost a comic relief space to actually becoming 
um, more of like, I guess, a court gesture, jester figure, which was actually a tormented clown as opposed to a, I don't know if court jesters were tormented, but I feel like they were, they were more laughing at the expense of themselves rather than like a happy clown that's comic relief. Yeah, it's like the sad clown, like the tearful clown. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if we think about this group of people who are laughing at someone else's pain, they're, they're sort of taking pleasure in that. And Bailey, you brought up when we were brainstorming this episode, this idea of schadenfreude. And so what, what made you think about that? Well, I, I just remembered it from my sort of high school days. Um, the way you're saying it makes me think I've been mispronouncing it my whole life. I've always thought it was schadenfreude. Uh, oh, no, it's oh. definitely not schadenfreude. I'm not, I don't know that I'm <laughs> pronouncing it totally right, but I know it's not schadenfreude. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so that's good. That was a learning opportunity for me. Um, I'm not but we always it on this podcast. <laughs> We always sort of use that term colloquially to say, did I say that properly? Yeah, colloquially. colloquially. Um, to to laugh about someone just laughing at someone else's expense. And I've never really thought about it um, any deeper than that. Yeah, so it's sort of the concept of um, taking this pleasure in someone else's misfortune. And there's an article um from Literary Hub, which I'll we'll quote kind of throughout this podcast episode, but the article is titled "Not Just a German Word: A Brief History of Schadenfreude," and the writer refers to a Nietzsche quote that says, "To see others suffer does one good; to make others suffer even more so." This is a hard saying, but a mighty human, all too human principle. So this idea that um, kind of stems out of envy in a way like when we're envious of someone or or um, a group of people and we see them suffer or get taken down a peg or whatever it might be that makes us feel good um Mm -hmm. and but there's something I would say like a little bit more malicious about laughing at bubbles because we're not envious of bubbles I don't think anyone really Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so there's kind of a, a dark twist to the schadenfreude there but there's other examples as well, um, especially in Presbo's class. We see a lot of schadenfreude. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of those examples that I can think of from this episode is that um, Zenobia says she doesn't have a pencil. And again, this is all part of the acting up in Pres's class too. But she, Zenobia says she doesn't have a pencil. And uh, I think it's Dookie who offers her a pencil. I could be mistaken. Um, but basically she takes the pencil and it's a sort of a small pencil and she says she doesn't want no welfare pencil and she chucks it and the whole class laughs at the expense of, I think it's Dookie who gave her the pencil. I believe it is. Yeah. And they're often laughing at Dookie and making fun of him. Mm-hmm. And it's because, um, he's got, you know, no clean clothes and just kind of pitiful in a number of ways. And yeah, so definitely they're they're laughing at Dookie there. And it happens yeah. again, um, not necessarily in this episode, but kind of throughout when, um, like when in the, they're in, uh, I believe it's the Korean restaurant and Dookie orders the turkey grease for his mom. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, you really are one of those kids at risk or whatever they say. And they all laugh at him. Yeah. And another example is when um, 
again in the classroom uh, where I think it's Zenobia again says that Doogie stinks and she doesn't want to sit next to him he smells or something like that and then uh presbo tells her well i think you need to work on your empathy skills and then she says well i think he needs to work on his hygiene skills yeah oh dookie that's so hard yeah but yeah so there's um kind of this idea that the kids are um partaking in a schadenfreude maybe it's because a lot of them are kind of in difficult circumstances so to see someone worse off is kind of the only way that they might be able to um, feel some kind of either superiority or like it makes them feel good, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly enough, this is the same episode where Presbo introduces this punishment reward system. Um, right. And says, you know, if you're doing well, you get a star. If you're not doing well, you're going to get detention. And what he's essentially doing there when he introduces the idea of detention is um, setting up misery as a, a teaching tool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which aligns with something Prop Joe says also in the episode. Yeah. And so the sort of background of this episode is that Prop Joe has been trying over this sort of two seasons, three and four, to get Marlo as part of the New Day co-op. Uh, Marlo resists this a number of times so prop joe decides to set marlo up with with the the poker game um with to get omar to to rob the poker game um and basically what happens is that marlo and in conversation with prop joe you know is it comes up this poker game and prop joe says well i knew that was going to happen and then marlo is frustrated that joe didn't tell him and And Joe basically says, you know, I have other information and I can offer you more. And this eventually gives, uh, leads Joe to giving Marlo the police information on his case. Um, But what Joe says about it is that a man learns best when he gets burnt. Yeah, totally. A man learns best when he gets burnt. And that's not a new concept in the series because presumably somebody like, um, Lester Freeman was meant to learn by getting burnt and sent to pawn unit. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this, like we've talked about punishment before. And so it's definitely kind of throughout the series. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the, the idea of punishment, I think kind of aligns a lot with the schadenfreude. And so I'll read a couple quotes here. This is from that same article that I just mentioned on literary hub. And it says, Schadenfreude has variously been called the absence of empathy, the opposite of empathy, and empathy's shadow, casting the two as fundamentally incompatible. Um, And so that, I think, is a perfect example of what happens in the classroom when Dookie is laughed at. That's the kid's absence of empathy for him and his circumstances, or um, like the Mm -hmm. opposite of having empathy for him. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes on. The psychologist Simon Baron Cohen has pointed out that psychopaths are not only detached from other people's suffering, but might even enjoy it. The Germans have a word for this, writes Baron Cohen, Schadenfreude. With all this swirling mm-hmm. around, it's little wonder that even when Schadenfreude feels right, it also feels very wrong indeed. Mm-hmm. And so, introducing the idea of the psychopath, I think, is really interesting with Schadenfreude in the wire when it comes to punishment, because as the episode starts, we're 
dealing mostly with where are these bodies and what is Chris Hartlow doing with them? And I think, I don't know what other people think, but I think Chris Hartlow is kind of the most clear example of psychopathy in the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great... Like, it seems like he takes pleasure in, you know, killing these people. Definitely. And I think there are there are flashes of Chris Partlow where you think, you know, is he an empathetic person? And the, the way that he kills um, Michael's stepfather comes to mind to me because obviously there is a an, an, an illusion that there is sexual violence happening in the home or that um, Michael had experienced um, molestation at the hands of his stepfather. And Chris Parlow basically beats him to death on yeah. that. And even Snoop is surprised by the reaction to that. But of course, as the audience were watching this thinking, well, is this is this humanity from Chris Parlow? Where well, mostly we see psychopathy. Right. And I mean, the implication in that scene is that Chris Parlow experienced the same violence. Um, mm-hmm. But I I don't see it as humanity. I see that as um, another example of psychopathy because it, I, I see it as him taking real pleasure in killing this human being um, as kind of like a proxy for his own violence, which mm-hmm. like not to sort of negate those emotions at all, but that is a really extreme result of like having survived trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but so this article, um, also states that the, one of the features of schadenfreude is that we often feel entitled to it when the other person's suffering can be construed as a comeuppance, a deserved punishment Mm. for being smug, hypocritical, breaking the law. So maybe that seems a perfect example of that. Yeah, absolutely. And the other bodies that they drop are always kind of like a comeuppance, you know, whatever guy said, Marlo's a dick sucker. This is his comeuppance. Doesn't matter mm-hmm. that it matters that people think he said it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there is a, this kind of idea of this sadistic Schadenfreude, which is taking pleasure in the pain that we cause ourselves. And I think that's Chris Partlow versus the incidental Schadenfreude of pain we don't cause. And maybe that the example of that is, is the kids that we talked about before. Right. Absolutely. Um. And I mean, maybe there's other examples of the incidental schadenfreude. I don't know about in this episode, but I'm sure it's elsewhere. Um, I think we see some of the incidental schadenfreude with Ziggy in season two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like I, well, and and I think a lot of the bad things that happened to Ziggy to us as the viewership feel like a comeuppance, and in a way, maybe we have our own schadenfreude. How do you say it? Schadenfreude. Think of Freud. Maybe we have our own Schadenfreude for that until, well, until the death dies for me. That's that's the end of that for me. But um, well, I guess I more so meant that the other characters in season two take a lot of pleasure in Ziggy's misfortune. Oh yeah, absolutely, and in fact, often aid in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, like. Uh, when Maui spills the coffee on Ziggy's new coat. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I don't, want to, I don't want us to deviate too much from the episode we're talking about, but it is kind of elsewhere in the series. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so 
okay, so we've talked about the misery element and then kind of that kind of led us to the idea of schadenfreude and, and the idea of psychopathy and Chris Partlow. And I think that is the sort of bridge that connects us to zombies and how zombies are the setting up of the episode. Um, I did a little bit of research about zombie literature um, and there's actually quite a bit of material there, but there's a Vox article called how the zombie represents America's deepest fears. And one of the quotes from that article says, can a natural person change into this monster that many fear? The possibilities are yes, it can happen. We have seen incidents that are very close to it and we are thinking it is more possible than people think. So like the idea of a zombie is that it is kind of a human body or human-ish with um, this violence or malicious tendencies inside. And maybe when we get to psychopath characters like Chris Partlow or like Kennard, I think also, it's like a- maybe maybe even Marlo in some capacity. Oh yeah, Marlo, I think also for sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe even Colicchio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because don't you think Colicchio takes a lot of pleasure in in uh, others' pain? Oh, absolutely. That's the dirty cop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe like the zombie is sort of a metaphor for this idea of those that walk among us looking to um like indulge in other people's pain and you know the zombies are like brain eaters or whatever so you think of that idea of indulgence and mm-hmm. and uh sort of feasting upon other people's suffering yeah and so all that to say i think that's kind of the connection there between schadenfreude and zombies um but there are some themes to zombie fiction and 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 gothic literature Bailey, tell us what those are. Definitely survival is one of the main themes. Um, all zombie apocalypse, whether it be movie, literature, whatever, it's really about a, a, at the core, good versus evil, right? It, when you're fighting the zombie apocalypse, you are the good fighting the evil. Yeah. Um, certainly um, hopelessness. I, uh, sorry, just to say like very apocalyptic, like kind of like the world is ending feeling. Yeah, absolutely. So hopelessness um, for sure. And this sense of sort of a rising tide that can't be defeated, whether it be from physical violence or, um, you know, some some of the zombie apocalypse literature is focused on an outbreak of an unknown virus that's turning people um, into the the undead. Yeah, Uh, but it's yeah. Good point on that about the virus idea, Um, because that kind of speaks to the sense of not knowing who is infected and who's not and kind of until it's too late mm-hmm. exactly um bailey did you ever watch like the walking dead that's kind of the main zombie show no i never did watch that i never did either uh because i never watched people anything. love it i never watched anything since i watched the wire so but if well listeners did watch the walking dead we'd be interested to hear your comments uh on these themes that we're talking about and if they apply to that show to Mr. Entertainment on Twitter, who we did a previous episode with, we're, I feel sure you've watched this, so we'd love to have your input. Yeah, definitely. Um, anyway, I haven't watched it, so I can't say too much about that, but I think you're totally right that this idea of a rising tide is a big part of it, um, because 
the zombies multiply so fast. Like you can't, Mm -hmm. you can't stave them off um, in, in the numbers that they kind of grow. And it's this idea, like you said, Bailey, about like pandemic. Yeah. And I'm thinking of that movie, I think it was called Cabin Fever. Um, And what's happening is one of the themes of zombie literature and zombie movies, I feel is that you're always trying to put your hand on the symptom or put your finger on what the symptom is but the the symptoms are ever shifting. And so every time you feel like you finally got the pattern, you're finally aware someone else turns and they didn't show that right kind of symptom or whatever. So you have no control. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I saw that one. It was not very good, but... It was... <laughs> but that's a great example of, of the themes that we're talking about. That's kind of, I guess, um, something that Presbo maybe deals with a little bit in this episode, not to say that the students are zombies per se, but every time he kind of thinks like, okay, this is like something that's going to work to help control the class or to get through to them. It, it seems to just like the rug gets pulled out from under him a little bit. And there's like something different that the kids are going to do worse than he realized. Yeah. And ultimately the only way to control the classroom is to remove those problem kids from the classroom. Yeah. Which speaks to the idea of, eradication eradicating mm-hmm. exterminating I don't want to say exterminating when we're talking about kids but like eradicating the threat um, mm-hmm. and which is what the sort of solution is in a lot of zombie literature um, exactly yeah totally so there's a New York Times article called the state of zombie literature an autopsy we'll put it in our show notes but it mentions a novel called the reapers are angels And it says that it's about a young girl and it says Temple is her name. Temple is blessed with an unearthly composure in part because she's a post-apocalypse child. This is the only world she's ever known. And she says, you got to look at the world that is and try not to get bogged down by what it ain't. And uh, Mm. that's in reference to the zombies. So I think that's a great reference when it comes to the kids that we follow in season four. Because if we think yeah. about sort of this urban goth gothic genre and the violence that they encounter, like they are kind of post-apocalyptic in uh, in the world that they are living in, and it's the only world they've ever known. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it almost in a way makes me think of the end of the season, which is where Dookie kind of he finally just tells Randy they're not zombies they're just dead there's there's no special dead it's just dead yeah and um I I'm not sure what to make of that other than that we're all kind of human beings with the same potential for misery maybe yeah well and I think also, this whole notion of you have to look at the world that is and not get bogged down by what isn't is the also notion of the special class that the the kids, the problem, quote unquote, kids eventually move to, which is where they start saying, this is our real life. Real life is the corner. Real life is we're going to be dead by 21, as that teacher kind of asks them. Um, you know, we don't we don't see promise for ourselves in the future. And yeah. that's the world that they're dealing in. And even Bunny Colvin says they're telling, they're educating us about their reality. Yeah. Well, and that leads us into another great quote from the New York times article that says, um, the 
thing about these newly empowered 21st century zombies is that they keep coming at you relentlessly, wave upon wave of necrotic, mindlessly voracious semi-beings. According to the current convention, the individual reanimate can be dispatched by shooting or stabbing it in the brain, but the strength of this inexorably advancing zombie population is in its numbers. And I bring that up because it says specifically dispatched by shooting or stabbing it in the brain. And that is the violence that we see in season four. Of course, gun violence is the shooting, but then the stabbing in the brain is like the nail gun that Chris Partlow and uh, um, Snoop use. But then Mm -hmm. this advancing zombie population is in its numbers. So that speaks to like the hopelessness that the kids feel is that this is, the life that they have and at any moment one of them could become part of the zombie population yes absolutely including i think randy like he narrowly escapes that yeah and i i don't know you mean like the dead the dead because like he snitched yeah yeah absolutely um well i was thinking of the zombie population too as being like the game so, you know, and then I was gonna say, well, I don't think Randy did escape becoming a player in the game. You know, he gets put to the group home and, and yeah. in season five, it's kind of alluded that he's he's part of it now. Yeah, you're totally right, actually. Um, he becomes like a different sort of zombie um, and maybe the kind of zombie that, um, like that sadistic zombie that we talked about with, this partlow and others that are are waiting to indulge in the pain of others like we see him later in the season walking or maybe it's season five when he walks down the stairs and like just like hip checks the kid the younger smaller kid into the staircase mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um well and on to that point there's another quote um from that story do you want to read it um you read it okay Modern day zombie stories often read like plague narratives in which a panicky populace struggles to deal with a threat that's overwhelming, unceasing, and apparently uncontrollable. So that to me makes me think about um, another, it's in this season, I'm not certain that it's episode five, but um, I think it's one one of the police are talking to Bodie or Poot and I, I believe it's Bodhi and Bodhi is like, you know, you guys are always going on about the youth, the youth, these, the, the youngins are wild. And, you know, but it's, it, it isn't like that. You just think that basically. I'm, actually, it was Poot. I think that's how that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good point. Because the idea of a panicky populace struggling to deal mm-hmm. with a threat, that is the story of um, the war on drugs, which we've alluded to in other podcast episodes. And the way that the police department tries to handle their crime stats and this kind of um, specter of urban violence, which, I mean, outside city limits, maybe in somewhere like the county, you get especially panicky populations even today that are talking about like, oh my gosh, look at this overwhelming threat of um, marginalized populations that are exacting violence on one another. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think... We can't talk about the wire and zombies, even though I know we're specific to one episode without referencing Hamsterdam, which I think David Simon, at least cinematically, really set up to look like a zombie apocalypse movie. It really does. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, if we want to extrapolate the zombie metaphor across 
other parts of the wire, maybe um, addiction is part of that. And we see that a little bit with uh, like Johnny Me, sorry, Johnny Weeks is a little bit like mm-hmm. a zombie, um, toward, especially towards when he ODs. Um, and definitely the people wandering the streets of Amsterdam. Yeah. That takes us really nicely into the last article um, that we're going to reference, which is um, from Vox. Well, I mean, sorry, I already said the title earlier, but it's the Vox article, How the Zombie Represents America's Deepest Fears. And it digs into how zombie literature for the last 80 to 100 years is used as a metaphor for these social fears that we have. And so the writer says, the undead have been used by filmmakers and writers as a metaphor for much deeper fears, racial sublimation, atomic destruction, communism, mass contagion, globalism, and more than anything, each other. Fear, which once compelled us to appropriate the zombie, has also governed the new symbology we've given it over the years. This makes the zombie not only a fascinating study of our country's historical fears, but also a window into how foreign ideas adopt new meaning when stripped of their original context over time. And some of the examples in that article are um, movies like 28 Days Later, uh, or I think it was like I Am Legend, came Mm -hmm. about during sort of like SARS outbreak time. And so that speaks to this idea of mass contagion. Um, Dawn Mm -hmm. said was during the civil rights era and spoke to a lot of Mm. racial tensions. And there are other examples. We'll put the link up um, either on our Twitter account or in our show notes. But this idea that the zombie can speak to multiple social fears at once, even within the same piece of text, is because the zombie is this human form that has that sort of unknown intentions. and, And it's about kind of recognizing that threat that you can't necessarily see Mm -hmm. yeah exactly and another perfect example of why the wire really is a gothic novel yeah totally and uh um i think it's just so well done the way that initial scene sets up this idea of the zombies among these characters and maybe some of the others move in and out of zombieism um across their seasons like uh depending on what their motivations or um their circumstances are i think Mm -hmm. probably by the end of the series has become zombie well and i think one of the sort of biggest fears that we see bubbles face in um dealing with this like like bully harass or whatever it's more than a bully but let's call him that bully um is that at the end when he finally has to poison him or the goal is to poison him and he ends up poisoning Sherrod, you know, he really looks at himself and wonders, have I become the zombie? Have I become then the one, the one who's the killer in this scenario? Yeah. Yeah. Which totally just takes us back to this idea of what kind of pain do we cause and, and, uh, and especially misery in others and lasting misery and do we take pleasure in it? And hopefully we don't as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Kel. Is there anything else um, around zombies, misery, and... Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude? 
I don't think so. But I mean, I think we'd love to hear from folks that have watched The Walking Dead or any other kind of zombie movies or zombie television and, and see what you think of some of these themes. Yeah, if you're into zombies, uh, let us know. And uh, feel free to hit us up on social media and tell us your examples of uh, more schadenfreude in the episodes. Um, maybe if you've got other sort of gothic themes that you want to share with us, we would love to hear them too. Yep, we're on Twitter at Rewired Podcast, or you can email us podcast.rewired at gmail.com. And uh, we'll see you next time. Way down, down, down in the hole.